so many people, including believers, uh, struggle, especially lately, with what we would call mental health issues. Now, I know that even to say mental health issues kind of makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable to begin with, but uh, we define those as depression, anxiety, uh, overwhelming anger, sadness, family conflict that doesn't go away. You know, God doesn't avoid those issues in the Bible, and we as a community of faith should not avoid those issues either. And there are some of you that have really, really struggled during this uh, past season of time, exasperated by this uh, tumultuous, disruptive last two years, both with a pandemic that isolated people, with a virus that caused people to be afraid, with schools where children uh, could not see each other's faces for a long time, with political upheaval that caused people to be polarized, divided families, cultural tension around the nation, and it doesn't stop now imminent uh, a, a major war happening in Ukraine. We see the images of people. But during all this time, during this very disruptive season, it's had a tremendous effect on people's mental health. And, you know, sometimes we think, well, does the Bible talk about that? Uh, the Bible doesn't use the word mental health, but it uses a lot of terms to address those issues. In fact, I I'm not going to bore you with stats because some of you aren't stats people, but just in case you wondered how widespread this is, a recent survey has indicated that uh, the there's a growing percentage of youth in the US, USA that live with major depression. 12 to 17-year-olds, 15% experienced a major depressive episode in this past year. Think about that. 12 to 17-year-olds, 15% is a high percentage that have experienced a major, not I had a sad day, not I had a bad day, not I'm feeling a little bit sad, but a major depressive episode in this last year. Over 11% of adults ages 18 and over have regular feelings of worry, nervousness, and anxiety, and 4.5% struggle with feelings of depression. In 2020, get this, there was 52 million people, adults in the United States of America, with mental health issues. 52 million people. Uh, that is a lot of people out of a population of 350 million people. That is a lot of people. And it's especially affected those between the ages of 18 to 25 are the ones that have been hit the hardest Rates of substance use have escalated over the last two years. And by the way, suicide is the second leading cause of death among people between the ages of 10 to 34. Second leading cause of death. Let's talk about it. 
Some of you here may be even struggling with uh, feelings of deep depression, anxiety, but you just don't want to talk about it. Someone says, what's wrong? That's okay. But inside, you're having panic attacks, heart palpitations, can't go to sleep at night, popping pills to try to just level it out a little bit, going through anxious thoughts. You don't know what's going on, but, you know, there's something wrong with my heart, but maybe having panic attacks. There's a lot of the population that's experiencing some of that. And oftentimes, we don't talk about it because either A, we feel like it's going to make us sound like we're weak or something's wrong with us, or if I just maybe had enough faith or if I was more of a sturdy person, or if I had a stronger personality, that maybe I wouldn't be going through those things. But I want to say, listen, times of sadness, difficulty, coping with the stresses of life and difficulty, it's a widespread phenomena. So if you are struggling right now, let me put you at ease. You're among a lot of other people. It's okay to talk about it. So I want, I want us to take our Bibles today, and I want us to go to Philippians chapter 4. Because sometimes people think that the Bible doesn't really talk about that. It doesn't use the word mental health issues, but it does talk about our thinking. It talks about our soul. It talks about our spirit. And it addresses the issue of the entirety of our persona. In Philippians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, Paul describes uh, us as being, uh, ex- uh, us as human beings as a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. That means that there are three components, three major components to every human being. One is the physical body that you inhabit. The secondly, it's your soul. It's the soul is made up of your intellect, will, and emotions. It's the part of you that makes you you. It's your personality. It's how you think. It's your volition. It's how you respond to people. It's what makes you unique as an individual. But then you also have another sphere, and it's called the spirit, body, soul, and spirit. The spirit part of you is that part that relates to God. It's that part that relates to the spiritual world, the unseen world. You have God who is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you have a spirit, you are a spirit being, but you also have the influence of the Holy Spirit, which is God himself. So as we talk about you as a person, it's important that you be whole and healthy body, soul, and spirit. Philippians chapter 4 is one of those passages that is very focused on the soul part of our wholeness. And so I want you to take your Bibles and turn there, and I want to focus today on five practices that help you regain your mental health. Five practices that will help you regain your mental health. Now let me say this, it's like anything else. Sometimes uh, you're at a point with your mental health that you really need to get some good Christian counseling, Sometimes you need to join a group to get some support. Uh, Sometimes we're in some valleys that are really, really dark, and we're not going to be able to pull out of it ourselves. We need help from the outside to pull it out. Let me encourage you to get Christian help. 
There's great Christian counselors out there. There's groups out there. But when we talk about you as a person, some of the steps that you could take yourself, let's talk about that. The Bible addresses some of those issues. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing... By the way, this is one of the prison epistles, so he's writing from prison. So he's not, you know, writing from a hotel in uh, Cocoa Beach, Florida with his feet up on the, uh, uh, you know, up on the table and a virgin pina colada talking about life and difficulties. I mean, he is writing from a difficult place himself, not a stranger to the challenge of isolation, depression, anxiety, the struggles of, of really having people turn on him, abandon him, uh, the, the struggles of thinking that his life was maybe, uh, he wasn't going to live another day. So I want you to, I want to put that in context here. He says, I plead with Eudia and I plead with Sinti to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, I ask you Loyal yoke fella, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. The first thing he talks about in the beginning of this chapter is in this whole context of not letting anxiety, worry, stress get a hold of us, the first thing he talks about is relationships. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Five practices that help your mental health. Number one, learn the practice of resolving relational conflict quickly. These two women make it into the Bible. We don't know anything about these two women except that they were fighting. How would you like to make it in the Bible and the only thing that people know about you is that you're fighting? That's not a great way to make it in the Bible. Now, it happens to be two women, but it very well could be two men as well. These are two women that are both believers, that both love God, that both work for the gospel. These are women that uh, both uh, consider themselves followers of Jesus, and we don't know the conflict. We don't know exactly what happened. But I've been around enough conflict to assume a little bit what can happen. Someone gets offended by the other person because they said something or didn't say something. They get hurt. How could they? We're sisters in the Lord. Can't believe she said that or didn't invite me to that thing. He gets offended. I'm hoping for an apology. The apology doesn't come. If it comes, it's a half-hearted apology, and I th- it wasn't sincere enough, so I'm not really happy with them. I thought they loved me more than they th- said they loved me. I can't believe it. Do you, can you believe what Sister Yudia did, that she did this? No, no, no. And can you believe that Sinji did this? And did it? Okay, and now they're sitting on the other side of the church, one over here, one over there, and they pass each other and just, hum, huh, you know, and go on. And now they can't get along with each other even though they know the Lord. And guess what happens to our joy and our mental health? When you're in conflict with someone, it demands a lot of energy and time. You think the worst thoughts. 
You try to avoid them. You wonder what they're doing. What are they saying? Are they talking about you? Did they, you scour anonymously their social media posts to see if they said anything about you. <laughs> and then they write a post that says, you know, I've just decided there's certain friends that aren't worth having because those friends say the wrong things. They're not real friends. I've decided just to go with the real friends. And you say, aha, they're talking about me. How many of how many you know what I'm talking about here? How many, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Don't act like you don't. <laughs> and what the Apostle Paul is telling these individuals is that I plead. He, it's an earnest supplication to these women that they will agree with each other in the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're going to agree with everything about every subject but it means that because you're united in Christ, at least that you have a camaraderie, a sense of let's deal with this because we are sisters in the Lord or brothers in the Lord. We are saved, we're washed, we're part of the same family, so let's deal with our relational conflict quickly. You know, I believe that there are some people that are stressed out today and you have anxiety today because You've allowed relational conflict to escalate in your life. It's in your family. It's with your mother, a relative, your husband, someone at work, and it just consumes you. You're, uh, it, it, it takes a lot of space in your mind. You bring it home with you, and it starts to negatively affect your view of life. And it can cause anxiety, and it can cause depression, and it often causes anger, and that anger leads to bad action, and that bad action focuses on the negative. And before we know it, we find ourselves in this vortex leading us further and further downward. And I don't have time in this message to get into all the dynamics of how to resolve conflict, but I want to say that one of the practices of people that maintain, that, that regain their mental health is that they go to the hard places and they deal with relational conflict. They initiate conversations. They ask for forgiveness. They dispense grace. They understand that uh, there's two sides of a story. They don't uh, hunker down in opposition. They pursue relational mending as quickly as they can. One of the habits that you need to develop, and by the way, studies have been, uh, studies have been done on marriages that last and marriages that don't last. And one of the defining practices of marriages that make it into longevity is their ability to resolve conflict is what is their conflict dance. You know, they've discovered that if a couple cannot resolve conflict or if they leave conflict undealt with or just brush it under the rug or don't quite solve it or don't bring resolution, that those couples eventually let things build up and build up and build up and eventually it, it breaks them up and it leads to divorce. 
Couples that learn how to resolve conflict, go to the hard places, discuss, talk, listen to each other, um, understand each other's feelings, empathize with one another, able to forgive and release, those are the couples that make it into the older age. Those are the couples that you see at 80 years old still holding each other's hands and walking and giggling and poking each other and walking with each other because they've had the ability, that ability, to resolve conflict. Number two, the Apostle Paul goes on in this passage and he gives us the second practice. The second one is, write this down, not only learn to release, resent, uh, learn to resolve relational conflict quickly. Number two, practice, learn to practice the practice of celebrating the goodness of God continually. Notice what he says in the following verse. Right after he tells these ladies to solve their conflict because their names are written in the book of life, then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. The second thing that Paul tells us about those that overcome mental anguish or maintain their mental health is that they are people that learn not only how to resolve conflict, but they're also people that learn how to celebrate the goodness of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, always doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room. Always, let me give you a real heavy insight here. Always in the Greek means always. It means that at all times. Can I tell you something? You, you get... In life, oftentimes, what you focus on and you replicate what you celebrate. Listen, I would ask you the question today, what are you focused on? What consumes a large portion of the gray matter that we call the brain? Or even more specifically, your thinking. We all have a limited amount of time of focus, don't we? Uh, you, you, you have a limited amount of time. You have a limited amount of uh, thinking space. And the question that I would ask you is, what consumes the majority of your thinking space? In other words, what are you focused on? What is your default mode? Um, let me tell you how a lot of us operate especially in this last two years or two, three years, has escalated that. Here's what a lot of our days look like. We get up in the morning, and uh, the first thing you do is you check your news feed on your smartphone, and what's the news of the day? And depending whether you lean to the left or the right depends what news channel you go to. And so some of you really absorb a certain, uh, certain uh, news channel. Others of you absorb the other news channel. But they pretty much ultimately are the same in the fact that they focus on the terrible things of the other side. And so you start scrolling. You say, oh, I can't believe it. Oh, oh, oh that's terrible. Oh, oh, I can't. How many of you know that the majority of the news focuses on the negative? 
And so, oh, can't believe that guy got put in prison. I can't believe that they're saying this about that. Did he really mean that? Oh, wow. This world is, oh, the, you know, the economy's going really bad. We may all be out of jobs. Inflation's out of control. House market is not this. You know, there's another virus they discovered now in Mongolia that they think may spread again as well, this virus that spreads in Mongolia. And you know these other people, and someone got assaulted over here. Maybe I'm going to be assaulted next. And this is, and you fill your mind with that the first thing in the morning by the time you have a cup of coffee, you're already in negative mode. And you're already starting to worry and starting to think about it. I can't believe this. Uh, this uh, Oh, you know, my grandkids, I hope they're okay because they're my kids who are sending them off to school. And I hope that they're okay. And by the time you reach noon, you're depressed. Because you have just got a steady flow of negative news that comes your way and you send your kids off to school and you say, don't let anybody do this. Don't let anybody do that. You watch it because there's people that are out to snatch you and they're going to get you. So you better be very careful and don't let this. And, and your kids are like, I'm going to school now. And they're, they're full of bad news as well. So everybody's in fear and anxiety and you wonder what's happening to your kids, why they're struggling, why they can't sleep at night because you just have a steady diet of negativity of worst case scenario of what if it happens. You say, well, pastor, I don't want to live with my head in in the sand, this is an evil world. Yeah, it is, but we have a good and awesome God that's on the throne. Rejoice in the Lord always. The focus is on God and his goodness and his sovereignty. And he says, let me say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. By the Lord is near, that should be encouraging on two aspects. We don't know if he's talking the Lord is near from an eschatology aspect. By the way, eschatology is the study of the end times, the chronology of God's return. Or he may be speaking more from a theological perspective that God is near. Either way, it's good news. The Lord is present near to you. And by the way, the coming of the Lord is near as well. So the point that he's making is that you can rejoice in the fact that the God of the universe is close to you and that God ultimately is coming back again. And so there's a deep sigh of relief that says, yes, you are good God. But, but, but notice, wait, not just you are good God. Let me celebrate your goodness. You know, when someone says rejoice, it's kind of a Christian way of saying celebrate. Rejoice means that you're happy. Rejoice means that you celebrate something. Rejoice means that joy is accompanied by those things that I'm thinking about, not because Who's talking here? A guy that's living in a mansion, driving around with no cares in the world? No, a guy that's in prison. A guy that's in prison. The Apostle Paul is in prison writing this epistle, and he's saying, hey, I want you to celebrate. Oh, Pastor, you don't know how bad my life is. If you knew how bad my life is, you wouldn't be celebrating. Oh, no, no, no. I know that life can be tough, but I also know that God is very good even in the midst of tough times. And I know that it's hard to celebrate sometimes, but there is a mindset of celebration that I believe that we need to embrace. I don't think we celebrate enough. Maybe you party too much, but I'm talking about celebration. 
Pastor, I, you know, I celebrate. No, no, I'm not talking about getting drunk at a party. I'm, I'm talking about celebrating, um, celebrating life, celebrating God's goodness, celebrating the fact that you've made it five years into your marriage. You should celebrate it. Celebrating that you overcame cancer, celebrating that you have breath in your lungs, celebrating the fact that you've made it through what I hope would be the worst of COVID so far, celebrating the fact that you have friends in your life, celebrating the fact, yeah. Well, Pastor, you don't know how bad the economy is. I, well, I know how bad the economy is, but you live among the two top percent of the world in your, uh, in your economy. You are among the five top percent of the richest in all the world. So although you may feel like your economy is kind of bad, you should celebrate the fact that you have what you have. In other words, celebration is a perspective. By the way, by the way, there are religious traditions that focus on the suffering Savior, and I think that should be a focus. Jesus suffered and died, and he was a man of sorrow. But, but if you go to different gatherings, sometimes you feel like the focus is the suffering Savior. So you walk into some place, it's very somber, it's very quiet. Like if you smile, you feel like, oh. And, and always dressed in black and quiet and focused on the suffering of our Savior. And, and you walk and it's almost like there's a funeral. The incense you can smell there. There's pictures of agony. And some of us were raised in that tradition. Let's not miss the suffering of our Savior. But, but, but listen, the suffering of our Savior on the cross was a several-hour ordeal. But I live in the space of the resurrection, the Savior that rose on the third day, that reigns in power, that reigns in might, that reigns with authority. I'm not in a perpetual funeral mode. I'm in a celebration that Jesus rose again, sets at the right hand of the Father. He's my King, my Savior, my Lord. He reigns on high. He's a, the powerful God. And that's why when you come to this place, it's okay to celebrate and clap and to cheer. It's okay. Why? Because you're not coming to a funeral. You're coming to the celebration of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And with life, I would tell you the same thing. I would say this to you. I would say, what are you focused on? Man, I wish I had time to talk to more about this, but I, I, I don't. But, but, but I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. If you struggle with a negative view of the world, if you're overwhelmed by all the bad news, can I tell you, why don't the first thing you do in the morning, instead of grabbing the news feed and scrolling down everything that's wrong with the world, why don't you grab your Bible, turn to the Psalms, and spend a little time in worship? Why don't you just thank God and just say, Lord, I thank you today that you're in control, that you are near, that you are close. I rejoice, Father, in what I have. I rejoice in that you are here. I rejoice in my forgiveness. I rejoice that you ultimately are on the throne. Why don't you put your mind in that direction? Number three, not only do 
I'm talking about practices that help restore mental health. Practice resolving relational conflict quickly. Practice celebrating the goodness of God continually. Number three, learn the practice of engaging in stress-releasing prayer. Notice what he says next. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, anxiety is a huge issue. It has become a, it's become a pandemic of anxiety, really. And some of you, for the first time in these last two years, have struggled with anxiety that maybe you never struggled with because these have been intense times. But on average, let me say that 40% of the things that we worry about will never happen. 40%. You say, yeah, but Pastor, those, there's 60%. <laughs> are about things in the past that we can't change. 12% are about criticisms by others, mostly that aren't true. 10% are about health, which gets worse with stress, and about 8% are about real problems that will be faced. 92% of your worry, really, is an exercise in futility. Someone said that worry is like a rocking chair. You know, it gives you something you do but doesn't get you anywhere. Some of us are consumed by worry. Some of us, as you sit here right now today, it's been hard for you to con concentrate on my message because your default mode is worry. The criticism of that person that gave, the job that you're having conflict at, that health issue that's not going good, that sense of I'm alone, I'm never going to find the right person, are they going to show up or maybe not, and you know, all kinds of worries that exasperate and get a hold of us. But let me tell you what the Bible says. I think we need to begin to engage in prayer, releasing worry. He says, don't be anxious about anything. But, in other words, instead of being anxious, he says, in everything, by prayer and petition. So he tells us to go to prayer. And you say, Pastor, I pray. But even after I pray, I sometimes I feel like I get worse when I pray. Can I give you a snapshot of how you pray? You say, well, I prayed about it. No, you kind of moaned about it before God is what you really did. You, you had a complaint session, and it's okay to be honest before God. But sometimes our prayer goes more like this. Oh, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. Lord, everybody's against me. This person criticized me. I don't know what's going to happen. Lord, save me. Please help me out, Lord. I don't know what's, what's happening. And, you know, this person said this and that person had said that. I hope you just break their legs and, you know, I, you know, I, I know I probably shouldn't pray that they get in a car accident, but Lord, if you see it in your will, could you make it a, a car accident, Lord? And, and I don't know that boss, get him fired because I can't believe that he's telling this about me. And Lord, oh, I just don't know what I'm going to do, Lord. Please do something like that. You just spend 20 minutes pretty much rehearsing your worries. And I think you need to be honestly, emotionally before God and tell God how you're feeling. However, some of you stop that way 
And you feel worse after you've prayed because you've just spent 20 minutes moaning. And let me tell you how God says to pray. He says, yeah, pray about everything that you're worried about with petition and others be specific. Let's try not to pray for too many bosses to get in car accidents or get fired. But, 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 but be specific. And then he says, oh, this is what you miss. With what? Thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Present your request to God. What do you mean with thanksgiving? In other words, thank you, God, that you're in control of my job situation even though I haven't. Thank you, Lord, that I haven't got a doctor's report yet. I'm kind of worried about it. But thank you that you already know what's going to be. And thank you, God, that you are the healer. And thank you, Lord, that, you know, you are Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides all of my needs. And I'm a little stressed right now about it. But thank you, Lord, that you are the provider. In other words, he says, wrap your prayer request in thanksgiving. In other words, what you're saying is, God, I, they, these issues seem big to me, but I'm thankful that they're not big to you. I'm thankful that you have solutions. I'm thankful that you are present. I'm thank you that you are high and lifted up, oh God. So although you're talking to God about these things, every single prayer is wrapped in thanksgiving. Some of us pray, but we don't do the thanksgiving part. We do the petition part, but not the thanksgiving part. And there's something about thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, present your request before God. With thanksgiving, because thanksgiving is an anticipation of good. When you go to someone and and, and someone, you go to ask someone of something, you say, hey, hey, I just wondered if I could, you know, borrow your lawnmower. Thanks a lot because you've always been so generous and, you know, you're a great guy and I appreciate you've done this before. It's different than saying, hey, can I go your barn roll because mine is broken down. I don't have enough money to pay for it. I don't know what happened to my lawnmower. It's terrible and my grass is getting long and they're going to find me. And I don't know what is going to happen if the city finds me because, you know, my wife doesn't like it. She thinks we're the ugliest house around. So could I please, please, please get your lawnmower? That's different than, can I borrow your lawnmower? Thank you. You are generous. You've given it to me. It's so good. I'm so happy that you have oftentimes given. I appreciate it so much. There's a big difference. Some of us have to relearn how to pray because we've been praying the wrong way for a long time. Uh, wrapped with thanksgiving, it says. And then it says, and then. What's the result of it? And then when you pray that way on a regular basis, when you pray that way on a regular basis, and then the peace of God. What does that word peace mean? Well, there's two words of peace in the Bible. One in the Hebrew, it's shalom. This is not the word shalom. This is the word for peace that kind of sounds like irene. Um, it, it's the peace means when you're at harmony, when you're at rest, when you're well, uh, that's the peace it's talking about, a peace that's a calm peace, a harmony peace, uh, a peace that makes you say, hey, it's well with me even when it's difficult out there. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, that means that you can't even comprehend it. It's not intellectually diagnosed or broken down. It's not a peace that you can describe exactly. It transcends understanding. It's beyond understanding 
but you can experience it even though you may not be able to describe it. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, your emotions and your thinking will be guarded when you start to pray that way. By the way, the imagery here is a military imagery, like the peace of God are these strong soldiers that set guard to protect your mind and your thinking from the onslaught of negativity. When you pray this way, wrapped in thanksgiving, thanking God, then the peace of God surrounds your heart and your mind and starts to protect you from the negativity that comes your way. It's a supernatural protection that guards your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. So, number four. I'm talking about the practices. I'm wrapping this up, so stay with me. Not only is there the practice of resolving relational conflict quickly, the practice of celebrating the goodness of God continually, the practice of engaging in stress-releasing prayer, Number four, the practice of refocusing your thinking. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You say, well, pastor, I can't control what I think. Oh, yes, you can. You see, there's a misconception that your mind is just an unwieldy, wild thing that goes wherever it wants to go. No, that's not the way thinking works. Thinking is fed. It's fueled by your intake. Watch a lot of scary movie thrillers, middle of the night, knocking on your door, phone calls, hello, this is death. And let's see what happens next time you're home alone. Lock the doors. I feel like someone's looking through the window. You know what? That's fueled by your thinking. If you fuel your thinking on thrillers and mass murders, and then you start to develop fear because that's where your mind has been. As a man thinketh, so is he. Your thinking affects your behavior and your living. So in my mind, it's just hard to control. It just goes wherever. No, no, no. You can't always, let, let me just say this. You can't always control what flashes through your mind, but you can control what you feed your mind and what channel you tend to go with your mind. Let me say that again. You can't control that a thought flashes through your mind, but you can control whether you stay on that thought or not. You can change the channel. It's like a remote. You can't always control the commercial that pops up. You know, as my, when my kids were small, we'd watch uh, uh, television, and sometimes there's a commercial that would pop up, and, you know, the boys are small. It's a little racy commercial, and we'd say, okay, close your eyes. Or we'd switch the channel. Because you can control the channel that you're on. And let me tell you this. What channel you're on tends to fuel your thinking and affect your perspective on life and your behavior. And you say, well, Pastor, what channel should I be on? Well, it tells us here, 
whatever's true. So get away from falsehood. What is whatever's noble? In other words, stay away from the scandalous, the seedy, the whatever's right. Not what's wrong. Just focus on everything that's wrong. Whatever's pure. Not the dirty, the nasty, the ugly, the impure. Whatever's lovely, that which has beauty to it, that which has sense to it. Whatever's admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. In other words, put your mind channel on those things that are worth thinking about. And as you start to focus on those things, as you start to change the way you think about the world, as you start to focus on that channel, then something begins to happen because you are feeding your mind that which is good and praiseworthy and lovely and noble, that which is good, and you start seeing the world that way. You start viewing the world in a different way because you're thinking a different way. And lastly, I'll close with this. Fifth practice. Learn the practice of connecting with people that are walking towards wholeness. And then the Apostle, says, the Apostle Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. What Paul is saying is basically you need to hang out with people that are pursuing wholeness of body, soul, and spirit. You need to watch who you hang with. You need to ask yourself, who are the influences of my life? If you look around, they tell us that if you were to identify your three to four closest friends, you typically have a good indication of where you're at. Who, who do you hang out with? What do they talk about? How do they influence you? What is it that you do? What do they celebrate? What do they laugh about? What do they tend to hang with? Now, you will be influenced by the people that are closest to you. You are influenced by those people. And so you need to ask yourself, what kind of people am I hanging out with? What kind of, am I hanging out with people that are pursuing the same sort of love for God, uh, wholeness, peace that I want? Am I hanging out with people that uh, share the values that I am hanging out with? Are those the people, is that the community I want to be a part of? Have you ever noticed change in someone's behavior? And you say, they didn't used to be that way. And then you're exposed to their friends, and then you say, aha, now I know why they're that way. Has that ever happened to you? You ever seen that? They didn't used to be that way. How did they change? Then you meet four or five of their friends who they're hanging out with, and you realize, aha, I know why they've changed, because they are like their friends. So let me just summarize real quickly. Listen, if you are struggling with what we would call unhealthy mental health, Anxiety, fear, depression, loneliness, suicidal thoughts that come occasionally. I, I just want you to know this. Take a deep breath. You're experiencing human emotion. We've been through a difficult time. There's no symbol on your forehead that says defective or broken. You are simply human. 
So take a deep breath. You're human. It's okay to be human. But if you're struggling in a way that could be negative or destructive to you, to your family, to your relationship, or cause you to do harm, or overindulge in, in drinking or drugs or, or whatever it may be, or harm to yourself, then you can't stay that way. Because your human emotions have overwhelmed you. They've taken you to a dark place. You need to get help right away. How do you get help? There's a lot of ways of getting help. Talk to a friend. Join. We have a, on Thursday nights, we have Celebrate Recovery that helps deal with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Man, I think we could all be in Celebrate Recovery, right? If you need to get counseling, get a counselor. But listen, don't suffer alone in darkness with a knife beside your bed wondering whether you should end it all. Your life is worth living. There is so much more to your existence. There is so much more to your story. And your story doesn't end with defeat and brokenness. Your story moves to redemption. So I want to encourage you with that. I believe that God wants to you to walk in wholeness. And I understand it's a journey to mental wholeness, but I believe that that journey starts. It starts not with changing the world and your surroundings because there's always going to be darkness around there. I think it starts with you understanding how much God loves you and that there is a purpose and a meaning to your life and that it's worth the practices to begin to live the kind of life that God has called you to live.